Hello everyone, this is Twisted Travel and True Crime, and I'm your host, Sandy. Have you ever known someone who drives you absolutely crazy? The kind of person who makes your middle finger twitch, just itching to raise every time they come around. You only put up with them because you feel like you have to. Well, that's how some people felt about today's victim. His behavior, character, and ultimately his death would divide a small community. Let's dive in. On the morning of June 1st, 2013, residents awoke to quiet and calm on the southeastern coast of Nova Scotia, Canada. A man named Bernard Sampson motored across the entrance of Petit de Gras Harbor in a small fishing boat. The harbor sits between Petit de Gras Island, where he lives, and a larger wooded island known as Ile Madame. Many mornings in that area, the North Atlantic is rough and rolling. But on that day, the ocean lay calm and beautiful, and a person floating on the sea could see for miles. Fernard motored along, enjoying the quiet calm, when he spotted something floating in the ocean. Whatever it was, it was floating along a stretch of shoreline where no one lived. Curiosity, the seductress she tends to be, teased him closer. In his mind, he began to paint a picture of a dead deer. He'd seen them before, floating and bloated, but as he drew closer, he realized that what he was seeing was a partially submerged fiberglass skiff. These small boats are often used by lobstermen and fishermen in the area. It was nearly filled to the top with water, and the sideboards had been cracked. The bow, or the front of the boat, sat barely a foot above the waterline. It appeared to be abandoned. Peter Andrew Smith, a journalist for BuzzFeed, stated in his article that Bernard circled the boat three times, and while doing so, he discovered a floating gas tank and rope tangled around an anchor. He then noticed the boat's outboard motor was missing, and its bow line was cut. The bow line is the rope that would be used to tie the boat up or tow it behind another boat. It's, it's located in the front. Something didn't feel exactly right about this, especially since Bernard had recognized the boat. It belonged to a local scallywag named Philip Boudreaux. Bernard called the Canadian Coast Guard in Halifax. They asked him to mark the spot on his GPS plotter, but it wasn't working, so instead he dropped a lobster trap to mark the spot. At 6.55 that morning, VHF marine radios came to life in the area with the universal distress call. Pan, 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 pan. All mariners, be on the lookout for a man overboard near the area of Petit de Gras Harbor. Bernard carefully towed the skip back to the dock and handed it off to another seasoned lobsterman. The two men combined had a 50 years of fishing experience, but had never encountered a situation like this, and they both wondered what had happened to Philip Boudreaux. The year-round population in Ile Madame is around 4,000. It's described as an idyllic place with a rocky coastline, small harbors, and lighthouses that were often called the prettiest in Canada. The family lineages there go back for years, the two biggest families on the island being the Boudreaux and the Sampsons. Many of the families use nicknames to separate themselves from one another. Philip Boudreaux's family were called the Bowsers. Even with Ile Madame's beauty and appeal, it's just a little too far out of the way to gather summer tourist crowds like the other areas. 
Because of the isolation, the people who live there year-round are used to doing things for themselves. They're jacks of all trades. Many a fisherman have the skills to fix their own boats, multitasking as carpenters, plumbers, and mechanics. A local named Jake Boudreaux is the editor of The Recorder, a newspaper in Port Hawkesbury, Nova Scotia. He grew up on Ile Madame. He's one of the long-term locals, and he says the do-it-yourself work ethic applies to everything, including handling disputes. The community also comes together to help those in need. It was strange, then, when authorities asked for other local fishermen to come and help search for Philip, that only one of the many showed up to help. Perhaps this spoke more about Philip's character than it did about the community. Philip Boudreaux was one of many seafarers. He was the youngest of four Boudreaux siblings. His father's house, the one that Philip grew up in, sat out on the windswept tip of the island. The family nickname, the Bowsers, began with Philip's father, who was known for his unrelenting cunning. The family was always causing trouble. They had nothing, and so they poached deer, fish, lobster, whatever they really needed, to live. Hunting was necessary, and so was sneaking around. The children naturally followed in their parents' footsteps. Philip learned early on what he had to do to get by, even if it wasn't agreeable to society. Or safe. Gerard Boudreaux, Philip's older brother, told a story of how one time he accidentally shot Philip in the head. They were out hunting together along the edge of a pond when Gerard spotted a muskrat. He took a shot at it. The bullet missed the muskrat, but hit a metal pipe and ricocheted back straight into Philip's temple. Philip flipped backwards into the pond, but luckily wasn't seriously injured. After that incident, their father destroyed the gun and likely counted his blessings. Philip's sister, Margaret Rose, said he'd never learned to read or write and eventually dropped out of school, but he'd already earned the reputation as a class clown. As he grew into adulthood, Philip would be charged with at least 80 crimes, according to court records. Locals told tales of how many years he spent in prison, and the rumor mill churned out stories of how he once or twice even escaped police custody. He had a charming, funny nature, and because of this, some of the residents either enjoyed his wily character or fundamentally disliked police. They'd help him by hiding him in old farmsteads or unused shacks. One time, an officer arrived to arrest Philip. She pulled up with lights flashing, then drew her gun and assumed a shooting stance. A neighbor stood by watching as Philip ran up a nearby hillside. The officer yelled, Stop! In the name of the Queen! Philip turned, grabbed his crotch, and yelled back, Tell the Queen to suck on this! Another man living on the island said Philip's boat, called Midnight Slider, was a good name for the boat, and for Philip because he'd always be out sliding around in the middle of the night, in the woods or in the water. No one would know where he'd pop up next. Il Madame resident and journalist Silver Donald Cameron interviewed several people. These folks were happy to talk about Philip, but they didn't want their names shared because their community was so small. One person described Philip as kind of a Robin Hood or a modern folk hero. He was perpetually on the run from the law. Another said... If I'd told him there was something I wanted, he would have went and stole it. A third said, I got better deals from Philip than I ever got from Walmart. Yet another said, Philip would steal the beads off Christ's moccasins, 
but if you asked for them or needed them, he'd turn around and give them to you. Everyone seemed to have a crazy and, in a way, charming story about Philip. There were stories of an officer chasing Philip straight off the end of a wharf. He jumped into the frigid cold harbor. To evade authorities, he hid underneath some seaweed, and when he eventually came up, needing to breathe, his middle finger came up first. Another time, a neighbor saw Philip driving down the road on an ATV, surrounded by marijuana plants. The ATV was so heavily loaded, it looked as if Philip was wearing a cannabis camouflage. The bushy leaves barely revealed his eyes. As his reputation for trouble grew, he'd often catch the blame for crimes he didn't commit. One resident said every time Philip was released from prison, there'd be an increase in break-ins. Was it really Philip? or was it other people taking advantage of his status as the black sheep of a very extended family? He regularly got the blame for what he didn't do, but at the same time, he sort of enjoyed the notoriety that came with the blame. Philip's life wasn't easy. He was one of four children from a poor family. One of his teachers remembers that when he was little, only eight years old, there was a day he kept falling asleep in class. She asked Philip if he was sick, but he said no. He hadn't got much sleep that night because it had been his turn to watch the wood stove. He had to keep it fed for the entire night. His teacher also recalled that he would sometimes come to school bruised. If locals knew more about his childhood bruises, they kept quiet about it, but they were much more open about him as a man. Although many in the small community liked him, there were just as many who didn't. But whether he was liked or not, he was missing and needed to be found. Later, on the same morning his boat was found, Philip's baseball cap and a pair of boots were found floating in the harbor. Based on the damaged boat and the floating debris, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and locals determined that there had clearly been some type of foul play. When the media got hold of the story, they portrayed Philip as a missing fisherman they also shared that he had a lengthy criminal record. Adversaries claimed he wasn't a fisherman at all. Instead, he was nothing more than a well-known lifelong bully and petty thief who was known to steal lobster. He was known to make violent threats. He threatened to sink boats and burn down houses. Many people felt it wasn't worth their time to report Philip to the police, because if they did, he'd find out who made the report and then he'd come to their house and do $10,000 worth of damage. He'd done it before. The police wouldn't catch him, and the complainer would be stuck paying for the repairs. In the community, he was really just an unpleasant pest that everyone had to deal with as best they could. He was like a bird, fun to watch from afar until he comes and poops on your head. Everyone knew when lobsters went missing from traps, Philip was probably the one to blame. But he might not have been the only one to blame. There were rumors floating around that some of the lobstermen paid Philip to sabotage their competitors. Every lobsterman wanted the biggest piece of the limited lobster pie. On Ile Madame, lobstering is a high-stakes game. Lobster crew wake up at 4 a.m. and will haul in as many as 250 traps before returning around midday to sell their catch. The area they hunt in is one of the smallest in Nova Scotia, and profit from the small area makes up about $6 million of Canada's $1.7 billion lobster industry. 
A license to hunt lobster can now cost as much as $780,000, when at one time they were sold for only 25 cents apiece. Originally, the islanders fished for cod, but the population of cod was decimated as a result of overfishing, and now they're federally sanctioned. Lobster, once considered the lice of the sea, are now the only game going. Lobster crews will work seven days a week during lobster season, which lasts from April through June. It's a very small working window, and the families who rely on lobstering income are very competitive during those few months. If one crew thought another crew was encroaching on their territory, they might hire Philip to cut some of their traps. The traps would be lost forever if this happened, unless the owner knew exactly where the trap was laid and was willing to dive down to pick it up from the ocean floor. Loss of traps cost a lot of money, not only from the trap loss itself, but also from the loss of lobster for the rest of the season. Lobstermen in the area maintain an informal boundary. Each group has their own space they can work. Some of them claim that a boat called the Twin Maggies broke the rules that season. One lobsterman said the crew moved into Mackerel Cove after having depleted their own territory. In the past, when this has happened, when a crew crosses the informal boundary lines, that is, the interlopers will begin to lose their gear, because other lobstermen will see them as greedy. When the Twin Maggie's crew got greedy, supposedly Philip was hired to poach the Twin Maggie's lobsters and sabotage their traps. Most mornings, the Twin Maggie's motored around the Cape. The captain's name was Dwayne Sampson, but his wife Carla actually owned the boat. The couple had twin daughters and were well known as hardworking and kind. Carla had inherited the lobster fishing license from her father. His name was James Landry. Her father still worked on the boat as Duane's deckhand, along with one of James's cousins named Craig Landry. The two months they spent lobstering represented the most substantial part of the three families' income for the entire year. They resented the loss of any of that income. On the afternoon of Philip's disappearance, several eyewitnesses implied that the twin Maggies had crashed into Philip's boat because he'd been stealing and sinking their traps. Others claimed to have seen the twin Maggies' crew out in deeper waters that morning, deeper than where anyone would be setting traps. Not only that, but they were dragging something behind them. A truck driver claimed to see the crew passing around a rifle when they got back to the dock, and a lobster buyer said the crew arrived an hour later than normal, with observable scuff marks on the twin Maggie's normally pristine bow. At the end of the day, the twin Maggie's deckhand, Craig Landry, arrived at the police station. He confessed that their boat had indeed collided with Philip's skiff, but it wasn't on the day in question. He claimed that earlier that week there'd been dense fog and Philip emerged out of nowhere, hitting the twin Maggies. Philip began shouting and threatening to burn their homes down if they didn't leave. Then, according to Craig, Philip circled around and slammed his little boat into the twin Maggies, much bigger boat, once again. Police followed up by interviewing the rest of the crew. They heard the fog story again from James Landry. He was second in command on board, and his story matched Craig Landry's. The only difference was he suggested that Philip might be out hiding in the woods. 
James also mentioned that the twin Maggies had lost 30 lobster traps in the days heading up to June 1st, which would equal several thousand dollars, not including the money from lost lobsters. The police didn't get much out of him, at first. Philip's big brother, Gerard, who was also a lobsterman, called police to let them know he had seen Philip out near where the twin Maggie's lobster traps had been. James Landry was brought in and questioned for several hours on June 7th. At first he refused to speak, listening to the advice of his lawyer, but over several hours the officers wore him down. Sergeant Richardson led the interview. He called Philip a petty tyrant who never worked an honest day in his life. He also tried to place James in charge, saying that James was the man calling the shots out there in the boat because he was the one with the most experience. After hours of an interrogation, Sergeant Richardson said, When you're laying in bed, I'm sure this event has gone through your mind time and time again. And James replied, You think? Richardson asked, Do you regret what happened? Be honest with yourself. To which James replied, Yes, I regret it. Richardson went on questioning whether it was something that fell out of control that morning. Was Philip out there fooling around with the traps? And the answer was yes. So you're the guy that was firing the shots at him? Yes. How many shots did you fire at him? Four. Whose rifle did you use? Mine. The story finally came out. The twin Maggie crew steamed out of Petit de Gras Harbor. They took a right, and once outside the harbor, they saw Philip at one of their traps. They shined a light on him to let him know he'd been caught. He immediately began threatening them about burning down their houses and sheds, while at the same time, he continued to haul in the twin Maggie's pots and waved a knife around. The twin Maggie's raced closer to the midnight slider, and as they did, James grabbed his rifle and fired twice. James thought that perhaps his bullet had hit the motor, because Philip's boat stalled at this point. The boats were now close enough together that the men could see Philip's face as it went white from fear. James took two more shots at much closer range, then pushed Duane out of the way. He took command of the twin Maggies, and he ran right over the smaller midnight slider. His exact words were, I ran right over him. I wanted to destroy him. I was seeing black. After that, I never seen him. That evening, he repeated his confession in French to another officer. James also reported a conversation between Gerard, Philip's older brother, and himself. The men had asked Gerard what to do to stop Philip from messing with their traps. Gerard's response was that they needed to get rid of him, and they took that literally. James then told police where to find the rifle. At the time of the interrogation, divers hadn't found Philip's body. And when the Mounties asked if he could be lost at sea, James responded, I pray you don't find him so he doesn't go into a cemetery. He doesn't deserve that. Later on, when James heard his own callous statements read aloud in court, he began to cry and wipe tears from his face. Upon James's testimony, Dwayne Sampson, James Landry, and cousin Craig Landry were arrested for what was presumed to be second-degree murder. Craig Landry eventually came forward and gave a slightly different account of what actually transpired on the morning of Philip's disappearance. Craig said that Duane spotted someone out in Mackerel Cove. Duane thought it was Philip messing with their traps again. 
Duane told Craig to load his rifle, specifically to put three shells in the gun, and that Philip was going to get a scare this time. Craig loaded the three bullets, and Duane then ordered James to shoot, and he fired three times. After the third shot, they saw Philip fall. He screamed out, Stop! James, you broke my leg! Craig heard Duane tell James to load another bullet. James shot again, but he didn't stop there. He grabbed the bow line of the skiff and began to tow the midnight slider out of Mackerel Cove. As he was being towed, the men watched Philip crawl up to the bow of the boat. He was seen crawling over the boat's benches, then leaning forward and cutting the bow line. When the midnight slider floated free from the twin Maggies, Duane turned the boat around and slammed into the skiff. Craig heard three loud thuds as the bigger lobster boat passed over the smaller skiff. At this point, Craig claimed he was so scared he shit his pants. The next thing he knew, Philip was in the water clinging to a gas tank, begging for his life and shouting for the men to stop. James yelled back, You won't cut any more of our traps. Then James grabbed a long fiberglass pole called the gaff. These typically have a large, sharp hook on the end made out of metal, and it's used to pierce the flesh of large fish and haul them onto the boat. They're also used to hook fishing buoys and bring them within reach. James used his gaff and hooked Philip by his sweater. They pulled him behind the boat and out towards the open ocean. At one point, Philip slipped out of his sweater and was now wearing just a black T-shirt. He was momentarily free, half-naked, and treading water while begging for his life. But the twin Maggie's crew wasn't done with him. Duane spun the boat around, and this time James hooked Philip again and held his face under water as they attempted to drag him along. When Craig saw Philip again, his body was limp and foam was coming out of his mouth. At that point, the boat finally came to a stop. Philip rolled over face down, and Duane told the two men to grab an anchor. The twin Maggies idled as James tied a rope under Philip's arms. They then dropped the anchor to the ocean floor, pulling Philip's dead body down with it. The depth sounder read 73 feet, and Philip's body was left there in the cold, deep, dark depths. Then, almost as if nothing had happened, the crew went on with their day. Duane was at the wheel, James hooked the lobster buoys, all three took their turns hauling up the traps. Craig banded the lobster claws. At some point that morning, Captain Duane bent over the hull of the boat to try to remove some of the scuff marks made on the twin Maggie's hull. Back on the dock that afternoon, life went on as normal as well. They unloaded their catch, washed down the boat, and sold what they could. Craig went to Duane's house to help him clean the rifle. Then he went home and watched TV. Philip Bowser, Boudreaux's body, would never be found. Police repeatedly sent out divers, but they had no luck. About a week after he gave his statement, Craig Landry was released on bail. A few weeks later, when Duane Sampson applied for bail, too, the community came together to raise money for his release. People immediately took up the cause and raised money for him. They even went door to door. Many people gave willingly, but there were some holdouts. Some who were related to Philip, or knew him, or just didn't like what had happened. The money was raised nevertheless, and Duane was released on bail. 
James Landry, who admitted to killing Philip, remained in custody. He took full responsibility, and it became very clear that James Landry was trying to protect his family. Reporter Jake Boudreau astutely said, I believe the calculation James made was that he was older. He was 67 at the time, I believe, and he could serve the time. He had less to lose by being older and semi-retired or really should have been retired. It's believed that if he fell on the sword, he would save everybody else. It seemed to be something that he realized and accepted fairly early on. Only those three men know what really happened on the boat, but because of his admittance and no real evidence, it was case closed for the Canadian police. Many people in the community felt that James did them a favor. The fishermen wouldn't have to deal with Philip stealing their lobster or cutting their traps or sneaking into their houses and stealing things anymore. Maybe some of them saw his death as vigilante justice. While Duane Sampson and the Landrys were in prison, they had a lot of help from families. The twin Maggies was confiscated as part of the investigation, so the Sampson and Landry families couldn't use it to fish anymore, but there were plenty of fishermen who went out and fished their license for them. The fishermen went out and fished using their license. They collected their lobster and sold it for the jailed family's benefits. There was help in other ways, too, like babysitting and, of course, monetary support for the families. The Eel Madame community continued to help each other out, whether in sickness, death, or any tragedy. People were lining up to help those in need, especially those who were well-liked. I guess that left Philip Boudreaux out of the helping category. It seemed as though half the community felt as if the crew of the Twin Maggies took out the trash, so to speak but the other half defended him. Claims were made against James Landry's character, stating that he was guilty of doing the same things that he killed Philip for. At trial, the defense attorney pointed out dozens of inconsistencies in Craig's testimony, but they were all small and seemingly inconsequential. The hardest part of the prosecution's job was determining motive. It seemed to be that this was murder over lobster, but if lobstermen killed each other over missing lobsters, there would be murders all the time, and this was the first murder in the area over 20 years. After a day of deliberation, the jury found James guilty of manslaughter. One question I had was, did Philip's own brother really suggest that he be killed? Well, not exactly. According to author David Donald Cameron, Gerard had been a lobsterman for most of his life. He lost a leg due to diabetes two years before Philip's death. He now sits in a wheelchair most of his days, and when asked about the rumors, he was adamant that he knew James Landry was going to do something to his brother. He just didn't know what. He thought they would do something to Philip's engine, or maybe just scare him a little bit. He had no idea that things would turn out to be deadly. He claims he had a clear view of the harbor from his house, and that he watched the shooting unfold. He refuted the claims that he had been one of several who paid Philip to steal lobster and sink other people's traps. He claimed that on the day of Philip's murder, Philip wasn't hauling any lobster gear. Instead, Gerard was adamant that Philip was just going out for a cruise. When he saw the shooting, he said he couldn't call for help. He tried, but he had no reception. He couldn't leave his home. His wife had their boat. So by the time he was finally able to reach the police, it was nearly noon. 
Even though Philip had many enemies and had stolen from so many people on the island, they showed up in droves at his funeral. A cavalcade of cars parked down by the harbor for his memorial service. They went to the little white church that overlooked the wharf and all the fishing boats. At the funeral, feelings of confusion ruled. One local said Philip was let down on so many levels. Another said a funeral is a time to set aside grievances. And yet another noted that there were a lot of the older community there. Philip was known to leave lobsters for them on their doorsteps. Some people took time to go out in their boats to the place where Philip died, and they placed a wreath on the water. The community definitely felt guilty. They took pride in doing things for themselves, looking after one another, and some of them felt like they had failed. They failed Philip Boudreaux. They failed the Landry family, the Sampson family, and each other. There was plenty of guilt to go around inside that packed church. The community knew that when Philip was released from prison, a lot of doors closed for him. His was a lonely life, and the only life he knew, and not many were willing or able to help him. When it came time for the next lobster season, the vandalism and lobster poaching continued, and as the town knew, even more lobster traps were sent to the bottom of the harbor. In 2015, James Landry received 14 years of federal prison time after being found guilty of manslaughter. He would be released in 2018 after serving five years. He died less than a year after his release at the age of 72. Dwayne Sampson pleaded guilty to manslaughter and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. He was also released in 2018. Craig Landry pleaded guilty to accessory after the fact and received two years of probation. Those who loved Philip Boudreaux knew that he was a human being who had family and friends who loved him. His sister said he had been diagnosed as bipolar. He was a man who had been rejected by many people in his life, but he wasn't always bad. He definitely didn't deserve to be tortured and then drowned. May he rest in peace. There are several great sources if you'd like to learn more about this case. There's a great article from BuzzFeed written by Peter Andrea Smith, as well as two books. One is called Blood in the Water by Silver Donald Cameron. There is a great series of articles written by Jake Boudreaux, who reported for the Port Hawkesbury Reporter. And there is an episode on the podcast Criminal called Midnight Slider, if you prefer to listen to podcasts over reading your news. Speaking of podcasts, thank you so much for listening to this one. I appreciate each and every one of you. I'm grateful for your ears and your time. I'm especially grateful to listener Grant P., who works with Java House, which is a coffee company local to Indianapolis. He was kind enough to send me some coffee to help fuel this two-job-holding-and-podcast-producing mom. Personally, I like my summer coffee like I like my podcasts, dark, well-balanced, and cold. His Java House coffee hits the spot. My favorite is the Colombian liquid cold brew pods. Holy moly, they're delicious over ice, but they can also be served hot. He even has a cold brewed coffee in a box like wine. It's so delicious. So check him out. His products are at javahouse.com. I'd also like to thank all the listeners who took time to rate and review the podcast. I'm always so grateful for that, as well as those who take the time to, well, the money, to support the podcast. 
You can find a link to sponsor the podcast as well as links to my social media in the show description. I'd like to thank a couple of the listeners who took the time to rate and review the show. I'd like to start with, it looks like Ann Butsnin 87 who wrote one of my favorites, five stars. She says, or he says, I really love this podcast. Her voice is soothing. I listen while I'm at work and at night to wind down. I also love the boat sounds. It makes it even better when I want to relax. I think it's great that she's sharing these lesser-known stories. These are stories of real people who mattered. Thank you, and I agree with that sentiment 100%. Uh, PJ Hazel writes, Hidden Gem, four stars. I stumbled upon this podcast when looking into the death of Talana Krieger. This is one of only two podcast episodes discussing the case. I like it because it's not too long, so I can finish an episode in one sitting, one drive, a shower, etc., She has a good voice, she gets right to the point, and doesn't read several ads first. She gives content warnings, and there are also many cases I hadn't heard before, which is rare. Good job. Thank you so much for that very kind rating and review. I appreciate your time, and I'd like to thank you all for listening once again. And until next time, I wish you all fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds.